0: Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars Podcast. We are glad you are here. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETF's Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, Symbol MOTO. For more information, head to motoetf.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hey, good morning, Fred. Good afternoon. <laughs> on board. Oh, I for guess this... it is afternoon. Sorry, <laughs> folks.
1: I, come on. It's like 12 whatever.
0: But for our guest, it's still morning. On board for this episode is Stephen Schladover, research engineer at UC Berkeley's California Partners for Advanced Transportation Technology program. Thank you for joining us,
1: Steve.
2: Well, uh, thanks for inviting me and uh, good morning. Yes, it's still morning here in
1: California. Yes, it's great having you, Steve. Thanks for coming on.
0: But Steve, let's give the audience a sense to start with on the types of issues you're primarily focused on today, Uh, the key problems that that you see that need need solving.
2: Yeah, I work on a variety of different things, some things relatively near-term driver assistance systems like truck platooning, uh, but then also give a lot of attention to some of the longer term issues associated with automated driving. Um, Some of the work I do is helping the state of California with the implementation of their regulations for testing and public operation of automated driving systems. And I also work on a variety of standards issues for driving automation, uh, both domestic and international. Uh, And from my perspective, I think the key challenge that we all face within this industry is how are we going to ensure the safety of these automated driving systems? Especially when we get to the higher levels of automation, when you don't have a human overseeing the system continuously, but now the safety of the system depends entirely on the technology. Uh, That's the big, big challenge. And associated with that is how do we get to the point that we can actually display a convincing enough body of evidence to convince the public and to convince the regulators that the systems really are as safe as they're claimed to be.
1: Yeah, so you, Steve, and, you, you and Alan, those, I was going to
0: say go way, way um, back on this. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we can go back, but I, I'd like to jump in and first of all, thank you, Steve, for all the work that you have done and you did do for for the state of California and putting together uh, their their efforts in this. I mean, you were you were absolutely instrumental there. They've been the leaders since the beginning, and it's it's really a, a uh, basically a roadmap if we can call it for for other states to do and and to follow. So, thank you for that. And of course, I agree with you. The, those are the big enchiladas out there. Yeah.
2: And I think our big challenge now is actually getting some regulatory action at the national level because it really has to fit within a national framework. Uh, It can't be each individual state trying to fill the gaps.
1: Right. And and maybe it's up to this point, it's been California behaving as Washington and leading the way out there and doing it. And and, um, and kudos to, to you and everybody else in California for doing that. Tell
0: tell us a little more about the the kinds of regulation that that you would like to see coming out of Washington. What should they be doing from your perspective?
2: They actually have a big challenge because of the immaturity of the technology right now. And I think the regulations are going to have to be developed in a staged fashion, uh, meaning that the first set of regulations are not going to be the final regulations. Uh, I often hear people talking about wanting to be able to have the equivalent of a driver licensing exam for the automated vehicle. So, you know, here's the test and the vehicle passes the test, it's safe enough. That won't work. That's just not a technically viable approach at the current state of knowledge. We, we know
1: we know that that doesn't even work for 16-year-olds, right? Because as soon as they do that, what they do, they they have a crash doing a K-turn after they get there. Never mind. At least yeah. Maybe that was only my daughters that went through it that way and I went through it that way, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah
2: that's right. And, and they have the benefit of human brains that are uh, still far more sophisticated than uh, even the best computers. Um, but I think the way the regulatory process is going to have to start Is with the engineering processes that the developers follow. So some regulate, and there are some standards that have already been written at the international level. Uh, ISO has a couple of standards and the underwriters laboratory has a standard UL 4600 on the processes for creating a safety case. And I think it would be useful to have regulations that at least require the developers of the system to show that they have followed a thorough process of assessing all of the potential hazards and of mitigating those hazards. And that's pretty much what the UL 4600 standard provides. It's like a roadmap for the developer to say, here's the checklist of the things you need to do and make sure you looked at this, make sure you looked at that and that you did something to try to mitigate those risks. And I think if we at least started with some regulations that require people to follow those processes, and if they don't to document the justifications for not having followed the processes, then we can get to a stage of saying, okay, these guys did a reasonable job of putting the system together. We can't possibly test it under all of the different hazard conditions it's going to encounter, but at least they've done... Uh, a solid job of engineering the system so that it can handle the kind of situations it's likely to encounter out on the road.
1: Well, I I I think, uh, I think Steve, you know, to me, that maybe that's about what you're going to say that that's, that's how you begin and that's how you get to go out there in the beginning. But but I think that that just lets you go out there uh, with an attendant on board for, you know, you name it—an amount of time. Mm-hmm. So that, in fact, you go and actually. I, I still like disengagement reports. Nobody else seems to like disengagement reports. I think disengagement reports are really great if, in fact, they're real and p- people don't don't fake them and cheat and whatever. And they're within the operational design domain that you're going to operate as a business, uh, you know. So uh, go, Steve. I'm, I, I interrupted. I shouldn't have jumped in. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Okay. Well, I I also like disengagement reports, but uh, the way they've been implemented so far is very, very inconsistent. And we've got some companies that have done a um, conscientious job of reporting the causes of the disengagement. We got others who've been totally uninformative about the disengagement reports. So um, uh, we're trying to, I guess I would say, upgrade the disengagement reporting process so that there actually would be more consistency across the different companies and that they'd be required to report not just what happened but why it happened and the important part of the disengagement reports is what was the reason that the driver had to intervene not just uh some of them report unwanted maneuver i mean unwanted maneuver is sort of a useless description of a disengagement cause but what caused the unwanted maneuver why did the vehicle misbehave in that particular situation and then What did you do to solve that problem so it doesn't happen again? Uh, So, yes, the the
1: idea. To to me, in those situations, Steve, it's, you know, we we don't know what we don't know.
2: Well, but if the developer doesn't know, that's a really big problem. Um, The developer needs to find out. And if they've left um, a, a disengagement cause unresolved, they're not doing their job. And I think the conscientious ones are right. doing or the, or that the, work. Yeah, so that then they understand why did it misbehave and what do we have to do to fix the the um, the cause of that disengagement.
1: So yeah, um, or or you take it out of your operational design domain. You know, there may be times in which you know, you know, so fine, uh, but, take it out.
2: <laughs> okay, but then if the vehicle encounters a situation that's outside its uh, operational design domain, it needs to be designed to recognize that situation and then turn itself off and turn the control back to the driver or to park the vehicle if it doesn't have a driver on board. Um, That's sort of a fundamental, very bare minimum requirement that if it's gone outside the operational design domain, don't continue to operate. And I think we agree that the, um, the process uh, approach to regulations is just the first step. That's to get us going. And then as more and more knowledge is built up about what the technical requirements are, we can start having some regulations that are based on meeting certain performance targets. But that's going to take years to develop, and it's going to take years to develop the collection of situations that need to be used to evaluate the performance of the systems to determine whether they're safe enough. But we're going to have to have something to do before that. Um, I also point out uh, one of the key elements in the California regulations for testing is proper training of the test drivers, because when you're doing testing on public roads, the way you protect the public is by having a well qualified driver who can intervene and override the system when it does something wrong. And that's why, for example, the Arizona Uber crash could not have happened in California because the driver who wasn't monitoring the system properly would not have qualified as test driver in California. Uh, She had a bad driving record and that driving record would have disqualified her from being a test driver in California. So uh, we pay a lot of attention to the qualifications of the test drivers and making sure that they've also gone through a a proper training program. The manufacturers need to put in place a training program including both classroom training and on the road training to
1: verify the capabilities of the drivers before they're allowed to drive the vehicles. I I think Steve, not only for uh, that's fine for tests but at some point, you need to make a business out of this. And of course, there are the two businesses that are associated with driverless. One, they sell one to me. Um, again, I, I'm sort of the opinion where you've been about maybe all of this that'll never happen. But whatever, because I'm too irresponsible. I'm just you know, uh, who's gonna? But if you might go in there and run a business, you know, have a fleet, and that, but the, having the attendance in the beginning not only to oversee the technology, but to let the customer be be comfortable you know this isn't a a circus sideshow or a freak show or a disneyland ride you know you're just trying to get someplace and well you know the the customer how you gonna deal with a customer go ahead steve
2: and, and that's exactly what waymo and cruise are doing in san francisco right now um they're they've got the permits to do that they're carrying passengers And they're working out the kinks in their passenger handling systems, in their ride hailing apps, and all the rest of those um, peripherals associated with it. Now, the other uh, business case that's really coming along is the package delivery. And that's a case where you've got special purpose vehicles that don't even have a driver's position in them. Uh, So that's a little bit trickier. And then those rely on remote supervision. Where you've got somebody back at the control center who's watching over the vehicles and when they're first getting out there it's probably one to one it's probably one remote supervisor per vehicle they're not driving the vehicle but they're watching everything that's going on and they can intervene at any point to shut it down and cause it to stop so that's another low speed urban application that's getting a lot of attention
0: right now
1: yeah but don't you have that in your california regulations that there is an oversight over even whether you're carrying people or passengers there's a remote oversight to the operation i thought you had that w- w- within the california regs now the regs the re-
2: yeah the, the regs require a two-way communication link between the vehicle and the remote person but Uh, unfortunately the regs don't say anything about what that remote person needs to do so that actually depends on the implementation which is when the company applies to do this kind of operation they need to explain okay what is that remote person actually doing what authority do they have Uh,
1: but it's not formally stated in the regulations yeah but you would think that somebody i mean you know as I, i i maybe i I, I too flippantly suggest that you know these things are businesses, and basically, you know you're out there betting the ranch every time you put one of these things out there. And we, of course, saw what happened to Uber's efforts in this area with the one crash, uh, unfortunate crash they had in Arizona. I mean, you know, uh, uh, you have to be responsible. At least the CEO has to be responsible of the whole darn thing, doesn't she? <laughs> Uh, Yes. And that's where there's a
2: wide variation across the different companies. Remember, we've got 60 plus companies that are permitted to test here on the road in California. Uh, A lot of them are household names, and most of those are um, quite responsible. But then some of those are little startups that none of us have ever heard of. And those are the ones you have to watch out for because Who knows whether they've ever done anything like this before or all their prior experiences in social media or uh, (laughs) other or mobile phone apps or other things like that that don't have safety consequences
1: or or competing with Android, which is one of the ones that are going public now. I mean, you say to yourself, I mean, okay, never mind. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of risk out there. We we need the regulations out there for the ones who are not responsible. Typically, it's not going to make that much of a difference in the behavior of the ones who are already behaving responsibly.
0: Steve, you've been critical of Tesla's decision to rely exclusively on cameras or automated yeah. driver assistance. You want to get into that a bit for us?
2: Yes, yes, Um, I believe it's gonna be necessary to have multiple sensor implementations in order to get to higher levels of automation. If you're just doing driver assistance and you've got a driver there who's fully engaged in the driving task, cameras are fine. But if you're going to get to the point where the system is doing the entire dynamic driving task and is taking full responsibility for the safety of the system, camera alone is not adequate. You're gonna have to have cameras, plus radars, plus lidars, plus precise positioning, and very detailed digital mapping. And when we get to high levels of market penetration, you're gonna to have to have Vita X communication as well. Now, each of the sensor technologies has its advantages and its disadvantages. And the reason you need multiple sensors is you've gotta have some with advantages that compensate for the disadvantages of the other ones. Now, cameras have several really big disadvantages. One, they can't see under bad atmospheric conditions, heavy rain, heavy snow, um, smoke, dust, fog. Um, It doesn't matter if you put 10 cameras on facing the same way, if you've got bad visibility, they're not gonna see through. Another disadvantage is cameras just create images. They don't give you any direct measurement of the distances to objects, They don't give you any measurements of the speed of those objects or the relative speed of those objects. Other technologies like radar and LIDAR can actually give you a direct measurement of the distance to the object and of the relative speed of that object compared to your object. They don't get tricked by things like uh, bad sun angles. You can be driving straight into the sun and you're still gonna get good measurements, which you're not gonna get from a camera that's blinded by the sun is facing straight at your camera. So you need to have these different technologies that are not susceptible to the same kind of uh, environmental disturbances. They're gonna have to complement each other and then you do sensor fusion to combine the data you get from the different sensors. Any well-designed sensor system is going to include not only its measurement of the target, but its level of confidence in that measurement of the target. And when you do sensor fusion, you combine them so that the ones that have high certainty get weighted more heavily. The ones that have low certainty or higher uncertainty get weighted less. And that way you get your maximum confidence estimate of, okay, what is the target environment I'm dealing with? That's the way you can uh, sort of maximize the safety of the systems when you're trying to put them out on the road. So um, I I really believe that um, the all-camera approach is a dead end in terms of trying to get to a higher level of automation. Now, I don't know whether Tesla has given up on the high levels of automation uh, consciously or whether they've given up on it unconsciously. But with that decision that says to me they're never going to get to uh automation at the level that they can have the system drive without driver supervision
1: so, Steve, uh, since we're doing discussion here, and this is, of course, discussion. If I if I had the answers, you know, I'd be a rich guy. So, but I don't have the answers. So. But I guess kind of the way I I've sort of argued it a little bit differently than you. You know, given that we're still at the early stages of some of this stuff, uh, some all of it. Um, um, I might I might choose a, 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 a decision to modify the operational design domain, such that um, I can get away with as few different sensors as I can, and 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 maybe even even deal with an operational design domain that is um, that is really only uh, with cameras. Um, um, uh, you know uh, this business about driving in fog and driving in deep snow and da da de, da da da. You know solving the the asymptote of the of the operation design domain. I think you know is just silly. I think you know I, I'd rather see see us th- developing something that does the eighty uh, percent does the let's call it easier stuff. Um, You know, you know, you know where the sun is, you know, where you are, you know, the way you're oriented, you know, whether or not you're going to be in in, uh, facing into the sun. I mean, even in the DARPA challenge, you know, we had, we had a loop in our algorithm that if we were driving into the sun, we would start zigzagging, you know, to to be able to pick up and because we were only vision. And in a sense, you know, there are some of the, I know that i know that that's an extreme on one hand and, and whatever uh but um, you know yeah it's nice it's nice to have the 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 precise mappings But boy, I mean, you know, what you're worried about are the stuff that's moving in the environment and all your horsepower is 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 associated with dealing with things that are moving. And if you can do a half decent job with those things, you should be able to deal with the stationary things that are in the in the precise map database. So. Yeah, if the if the data is free and you've been there a gazillion times and you've accumulated it great but but boy uh, you know that doesn't help you dealing with with the moving stuff which is which is the the really tough piece I, I you know that's a disc I know it's a discussion a, <laughs> it, it's a discussion partially and we're having a discussion here so yeah um, with, go ahead. With, but
2: but but the map helps you actually does help you deal with the moving stuff because it tells you exactly what you can Subtract that's not yeah.
0: moving, yeah.
2: and then then you can focus the rest of your attention on what's different from what's in that detailed map. Yeah, and that's yeah. actually one of the main advantages of having that detailed map by by knowing which are the things that are not on the map, and now those are the things that could could hit you. Yeah. Um, But of course, you know, we we look at uh, the restricted operational design domains. uh, We'll go back to Morgantown and, you know, which uh, uh, (laughs) is a difficult in our history. You know, there you've got the restricted operational design domain. And the challenge is how do you now expand the operational design domain outside the fixed guideway to cover enough useful places that you actually have a viable service?
1: absolutely absolutely and, think, and, and you bring out Morgantown I think we should we deserve to give it some kudos what is it 45 plus years 46 years that they've been operating out there essentially I mean can anything yeah. be safer than that so yeah you know and completely automated driverless blah 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 and all the others you know, minor communications back to headquarters you know I mean but the operational design domain is like teeny tiny <laughs> right, right and
2: and 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 the big challenge now is expanding that operational design domain Absolutely. in a way that provides a viable service.
1: And yeah, it gives you a business, lets you be in business, right? <laughs> right? right, Right. yeah. But, but how
2: do you do that considering yeah. all of the unpredictable stuff you're still going to encounter, even yeah. in a relatively confined area uh you know and take say emergency vehicles or uh you know police officers directing traffic the things that because the the power went down and the traffic signals are uh are are down there you don't have traffic signals so an officer is out there directing traffic what do you do yeah. um or uh you know sudden rainstorm yeah. 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 and you know now so you just halt the service is that now a viable commercial service if you can't operate it uh when it starts raining um and and maybe it is in chandler arizona where it hardly ever rains (laughs) but uh, if you turn to New
1: Jersey where we got completely white, but there's nobody. I mean, we barely could drive down here two nights ago because, hey, Route 1's closed. Yeah. 295 okay. is closed. I mean, right, not right. even but, us great humans could even the operational design domain went to <laughs> right. Well, so so you can't expect
2: any automated vehicle. to <laughs> Absolutely
1: or, not. I mean, no. I mean, hey, stay home. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, that's right. But, but you still have to look at the realistic cases that you're going to have to yeah. serve in order to have um, sort of a minimum viable business. And
1: yeah.
2: um, and I think vision is still going to be hard to get to work through any reasonable minimum operational yeah. item. I mean, I use the example here, here in the Bay Area, everybody who drives across the Bay Bridge, knows that when you're driving from uh, Oakland towards San Francisco, you've got to go through a big toll plaza. The toll plaza has metering lights so that they can regulate the flow onto the bridge. At certain times of the year, uh, usually right around the equinoxes, the fall and the spring equinox, the setting sun is right behind those traffic signals. And no matter what you do, you cannot see those traffic signal heads when the sun is setting right behind them. That's a case where it doesn't matter how good a camera you've got, it's gonna be blinded by that setting sun right behind the traffic signals.
1: Yeah, the the bus drivers on the exclusive uh, bus lane leading to the Lincoln Tunnel uh, from Jersey to New York, there's a helix in the morning. Guess where the sun's coming up, right? Every one of those buses the whole the, the the flow just basically almost stops for a few minutes there because at one point on the helix, irrespective of the day, as long as the sun's shining, boy, you know you can't see right right so and those are examples where you need
2: other technologies that are not going to be impacted yeah. by that particular phenomenon
0: right. What kinds of progress, Steve, have you seen in the development of automatic emergency braking that we so often talk about here? Well,
2: and this is where I think we have to be clear about what automatic emergency braking really is. So I think, I, I mean, I've been reading uh, Alan's postings on this for a while, and I think what, what Alan is talking about is a comprehensive collision avoidance system, and that's not what automatic emergency braking is. Um Automatic emergency braking is a very basic system. It's like the first step towards uh, collision avoidance. And it's designed so that at the very last instant, if you've got an imminent crash, it's going to try to mitigate the severity of the crash. It isn't really designed to handle every possible crash scenario because doing the comprehensive collision avoidance is Hugely challenging, technically. Um, there's so many different things that have to be considered in dealing with that. And I've gotten exposed to this through some of the work on the international standards committees that I've done, where we've written some of the standards for these uh, collision avoidance breaking systems. And in fact, the very first thing we came up with is a lot of um, the companies that are most advanced in this say don't call it collision avoidance because we can't guarantee collision avoidance. So we call it collision mitigation braking system, system that's going to get rid of some of that kinetic energy so that if you crash, you crash at a lower impact speed. Um, Because it's still too hard to be able to detect all of those possible threats and know when to apply the brakes and when to not apply the brakes to avoid them but when you get to the point that you've got a very high confidence if i don't do something the crash is going to happen then we put on the brakes and try to get rid of that kinetic energy
1: well, I guess you know the discussion that I, I'm trying to get is is to move move away from that, and 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 say, okay, call it whatever you want, call crash mitigation, great, but but let's really try to get to a crash avoidance. You know, when you talk to truckers, the the, the example that they always give you is if I'm a if I'm a professional driver driving a a class eight down a New Jersey turnpike or something like that, and I'm going to pass the truck ahead of me, you know, what I do is I I do a run run-up behind them and then pass and probably at some point during the run-up I get within whatever the time to collision metric or whatever that's used in all these things and I violate that and unless the system is aware that that is what I'm doing it's going to apply the brakes and then of course uh, the professional truck driver is going to go nuts and he's going to take the truck back to the manufacturer and da 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 but you know there are some of these situations in which you could It could have enough intelligence in the system that it knows that this is what you are doing. And so it then, you know, operates differently. But it'd be nice to me if we got into the discussion of these things and maybe not do them all, but start doing some of these things. You know, a a Tesla, 25 miles an hour, hitting a tree or hitting a boulder. Come on. I mean, you know. You can't do that one. I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry, it just drives me nuts. Talk to me, Steve.
2: (laughs) Well, but so the scenario you mentioned is a good example of why the manufacturers are kind of reluctant to do that, because that's hard to actually understand to make the distinction between you doing that deliberately as part of a passing maneuver, versus you not paying attention and actually being in imminent danger of crashing into that truck. Uh, so that's still really hard to understand, and there are lots of people working on it, trying to um, to solve some of those problems. But it's not yet at the point that it's ready for commercial deployment. And this is maybe the case where uh, the concept that Toyota has been working on, called the Guardian, comes in, and that's the uh, th- that that's a system that is trying to do more of that. It's trying to l- Figure out when can it second guess the driver and say, "Wait a minute, the driver is now not doing something right." It's like you're coming up fast on that other vehicle, and it doesn't seem to be a passing maneuver involved. So we really do need to step on the brakes and prevent you from having that crash. But um, we're
1: slowing you down, or whatever, as opposed to waiting till 1.6 seconds of collision, and then all hell breaks loose and whatever. And do do the da 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 da
2: Right. But how do you do that in a way that doesn't make you, the driver, really angry and said, damn it, you prevented me from doing what I was trying to do? Because that's a very <laughs> this, fine this line. This isn't easy.
1: This isn't but, easy, Steve. Nobody suggested no, it was no, easy, no, right? I mean, no, that's. No, that's, no that's, it isn't.
2: Yeah. It isn't easy. And then think about the challenge. Are you doing the driving or is your wife doing the driving? And you have two different driving styles. So what's appropriate for you might be different from what's appropriate for your wife to be doing. And it's got to be able to recognize that difference as well. So it's really hard in a way. It may be harder than doing the automation when the system uh, has the full awareness of everything and is doing all of the control and making all the driving decisions.
1: Yeah, I I love Toyota's Guardian name of it. Uh, You know, that that is an appropriate name for such a thing that in fact it's there to protect us you know that to, 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 you know i might even call it a get out of jail free card or something like that you know i've been stupid i've been misbehaving and it it bails me out i mean you know um uh you know it's it's i we need these i, I don't know maybe maybe you don't need them but uh but I, I tend to i misbehave in a car man i need help i, I just <laughs> help me out here (laughs) guard me I mean be my guardian Yeah, yeah
0: but it's been so hard Steve is that the point it's been so hard that Toyota has not been ready to implement this
2: well they've been working on it as an R&D project uh, for quite a number of years and and I think coming to the recognition that This may even be harder than doing the automated driving when you're making all the decisions because of that need to second guess the driver and decide, um, okay, is this a case where the driver is doing something for a good reason? Or is this a case where the driver doesn't have a good reason for doing what they're doing and we need to step in to prevent them from getting in trouble?
1: It's fundamentally more difficult because not only do you have to have a knowledge about the environment around the car, you have to have knowledge about the environment inside the car with the driver. And you basically need to understand that as well as you need to to understand both as opposed to one. Yeah, so,
2: so that's what makes it really challenging, and that's why you don't see it on the market yet, and um, I, I don't know when when you will. And it'll probably start with some limited functionality before it's got more complete functionality. But, um, you know, people are working on this, but it's um, it's not easy.
0: On that note, we'll be back with more, but first, this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor – The Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, look for a white paper. It's called the Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Some great information there to help you make informed decisions about investing. You may know that ETFs can be a smart way to spread risk with investments and maybe focus on a particular category of stocks. The website, again, is M-O-T-O-E-T-F We're back with more of the Smart Driving Cars podcast and our guest, UC Berkeley research engineer Steve Schladover. Alan, in the latest Smart Driving Cars newsletter, you highlight a piece from Brew headlined, In a Patch of Arizona, Everyone Knows Waymo, But Few Use It.
1: I guess, you know, I guess it's continuing my comment. I'm just trying to get them to come to Trenton where there's a market for all this, where actually people would appreciate it and, and, and get value out of the additional mobility if, if, you know, if anybody would uh, come over here and, and handle it, I guess, you know, my fundamental comments on Chandler, it's a great place to test why, because you really do want to start where it's easier rather than harder because you can make this thing infinitely difficult, right, Steve? I mean, if you want to deal with with all the all the various things uh, there's plenty for a lot of folks to, and a lot of startups to do for many many years but you know Let's at least find some places where, in fact, it could it could deliver some quality of life benefits to some people. And and unfortunately, you know, you have Chandler with 70 percent of the households having two or more cars and and Trenton, 70 percent of the households have one or fewer, one or fewer is zero. You know, I I guess maybe some even have negative cars. It's that bad in Trenton. But, you know, it, it could really I don't know. that's where I would like to see them and that's what that's what I'm spending all my time doing trying to make that happen. Well as
0: Steve mentioned they are in San Francisco as well now at least yeah as long
1: as they're out there you know in the Castro neighborhoods and in the other neighborhoods of and they're not just in downtown for the for the Silicon Valley, whatever's, you know, and people that are on the, on an expense account, whatever. I don't know.
2: Well, the city of San Francisco is expensive enough that um, just about all the neighborhoods are... Um, are poor. <laughs> well, well, people are house poor. But, yeah. uh, they, they are serving some significant uh, portions of the city, but um, a lot of them are upper income portions of the city uh, because... It's still not a cheap service. Um, this is, uh, in fact, there's some indications that maybe they're going to pitch it as more of a premium service rather than a um, an
1: affordable service. Uh, we'll see how that develops. Oh, I I, I don't know I think that the business case for premium service is uh, is just non-existent in the beginning I mean you know if if you stop uh, treating this uh, I'm, I'm not using the the circus uh, freak show approach uh, thing of this if it's not you know something oh my goodness it's a Disneyland ride if you sit there and you you have to compete with a, with a a chauffeur in a limousine uh, I mean um, we're not close I mean the level of service you have to be able to provide is like Unreal, uh, you know. If you have a professional driver in there driving you, and if you want, if you think you can, you can do better than that now or even soon. Um, you know, I'm with you, Steve. This, this is never gonna happen. Maybe I don't know. What?
2: well and that's actually one of the big challenges with a lot of the push that's been on to have it um, serve people who have mobility impairments because there are a lot of challenges associated with helping people get in and out of the vehicles and if people are in wheelchairs with securing the wheelchairs and doing all of these other kind of ancillary functions that drivers do right now and um, And then I've even seen uh, people advocating for having an attendant on board the automated vehicle to provide all of these ancillary services. And well, my reaction to that is if you need the attendant on board, that should be the driver. Why not just as a a system that's driven by a driver just what they do right now. And that driver helps with getting people in and out of the vehicle. Forget about trying to do that with an automated vehicle.
1: Yeah, or I even go further, Steve. If, if you need an attendant on board for the passenger and that attendant is also supposed to be driving and you're having that person do both jobs, you better be paying them double. And and you're you're cheating a little bit because you probably should have a driver and an attendant. I mean, you know, we know that you shouldn't be on your cell phone and whatever and texting while you're driving and all the other things. I mean, driving... If you're going to have a human driver, and they're driving is a is a full-time job, okay, and it is a full-time job. Yeah. It is a well, full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, on, 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 yeah.
2: go,
0: go ahead, Stephen.
1: Were good, gonna good, say, Steve.
2: I, I was going to say, a lot of these challenges are, I think, what's motivating more of the attention on the package delivery as opposed to people movement for the early applications in urban areas. And there's some good reasons for, for the package delivery application being attractive, uh, because packages don't get impatient if the vehicle um, is deferential to other traffic participants and if the vehicle drives really cautiously the package doesn't care uh, if you're going to get into a dangerous situation the vehicle can really prioritize protection of the other road users because it doesn't have a person on board that it needs to protect if the package gets banged up big deal Uh, as opposed to a person inside the vehicle getting banged up. So uh, uh, considerations like that actually make the package delivery application a little bit less challenging than the people moving application.
1: And and Steve, you know, what I throw on top of that is between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., there's nobody on the roads. And unless, you know, I need it right this second, 20 minutes, whatever, you know, half of this stuff that that at least half of the stuff that Amazon delivers is delivered just fine. Thank you the next morning. And my goodness, Amazon has to be working Working on this. They have to be doing it inside. They have to, I mean, they're, they're, how much of their balance sheet right now is associated with getting stuff to my house, you know, and, and they yeah. don't have to tell us about it. I don't know if you know anything. I, I, you know, if I knew anything inside, I wouldn't say it anyway, but I don't, I don't even ask, but they have to be working on it. It's very much in their interest. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I assume they must be, and I assume it had to be part of the motivation for acquiring Zooks as well,
1: Uh, but although... They claim not, but yeah, but, but they don't have to tell us. Right. Because because, they, they, you know, it's for their business. It's internal. They don't you know. And as soon as they get it to a point where they think they can do it, then they'll raise their hand, and say, hey, yo, Steve Allen, you know, we're doing this. It's a look at watch out, whatever. And they'll do it, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm just naive here.
0: Another headline, Alan. A new estimate from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration indicates that a surge in road deaths that we've talked about over and over, that began with the pandemic, has continued into this year.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a it's a twenty five percent increase, uh, you know, for that quarter over what it was sort of pre pre um, uh, COVID and as opposed to, you know, one fatality per whatever it is, hundred million vehicle miles or whatever that number is, you know, it's up to 1.26 and, and, you know, and it's, I don't know what your experience Steve is driving, but it's, uh, you know, I, I always take my nine above the speed limit, but people are done. They're taking 19 now, if not 24. And it's just, it's like crazy yeah. out there, and everybody has their phones in their face. And you know, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. I, mean and I
2: don't know whether they've done the studies yet to see try to figure out what's causing that uh, that effect, why it's been so bad. But certainly, I've noticed when I'm on freeways in the Bay Area that are I can be out there at times a day that in the past would have been super congested, and they're not as congested now. So the traffic is moving at higher speeds than yeah. it did previously maybe that's some of what's behind this uh, yeah it,
1: it, yeah uh, yes uh, I, we need to do the studies but i think we all sort of kind of understand what's going on people are just uh, i don't know maybe we need we really do need some technology to keep us from misbehaving as we're out there doing this stuff You know, having the yeah. phones in our face spe- yeah. going at speeds that what the hell i mean but, cut it out and but, you know tailgating and whatever. Anyway.
2: But, I, but I think the the challenge in that is that the people who most need it, the ones who are most prone to misbehave, are probably the least likely to decide they want to have it on their vehicles.
1: And they have the snips to go off and if they can't figure it out themselves they just go to the inner tubes and the inner tubes tell them exactly what to do and again there are 18 youtube videos that of course nobody will ever take down until never mind we we don't want to go we i'm too cynical for that stuff sorry Steve. Well, you're cynical about yep. this
0: next one too alan a toyota what? has paused its self driving shuttle service in tokyo's olympic village after a vehicle collided with a visually impaired athlete Apparently, it was under the control of a human operator, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, this—the problem is again—we're we're still in this test phase business, and every one of these crashes just, you know, gets gives another black eye to the technology. And and to be out there doing some of this stuff, maybe maybe we shouldn't be out there yet, or something. I don't know. About it. This is this is a really tough problem, Steve. You've been saying it for a long time. You you you're, you're the leader in saying it's a really tough problem. I've sort of been a little bit more flamboyant, but but it is a really tough problem. Yeah.
0: Steve,
2: it's a tough problem when you've got uh, some uh, i guess i'd say some ambiguity about what's the role of that person and what's the role of the technology on the vehicle and i, I think i saw a report that the toyota had restarted that service for the uh, the paralympics but with yeah, some yeah. procedural modifications well,
0: I think yeah it was and, was and during that, the paralympics wasn't yeah it, it was during
1: Olympus the paralympics and... and of course they don't have a steering wheel in there and they have somebody with a joystick you know basically running it by themselves, and who cares? I mean, the, the fault is probably with the implementation of the joystick opera, operational mode has nothing to do with any of the you know technology that's really on there to do driverless, and it's just whatever. Um, it's unfortunate.
0: Well, this is in your neck of the woods, Steve. Motional has announced that it will deploy a test fleet of Hyundai electric vehicles equipped with robo-taxi technology in la
2: okay that's one i had not heard about and um i guess is that something still on a it has to be on a testing basis it's on a right. testing Test basis, yeah. and
1: it's to you know it's to do it's not doing it's it will do you know it's still i i don't know they must be trying to raise the money I, never mind i shouldn't have said that but um, whatever i did say it yeah. Yeah,
2: I've given up on paying attention to all the announcements
1: (laughs) of what people will do.
2: Uh, It's only worth paying attention to what they have done. Right. Uh, Because, uh, you know, now we've we've passed the year 2000 and look back at all of the announcements around 2015. I'm sorry, we passed 2020. Look at the announcements from 2015 and 2016 of all of the great things that were going to happen by 2020. Well, now that 2020 is behind us, we see that none of that stuff actually happened.
1: Uh, yeah, the Gunna stuff, yeah, you just have to roll your eyes on. And and what's bothering me even more lately is you look at some of the DOA stuff and the videos some people put out, and you, you look at them closely and you say, uh, What? Uh, where are the, where's the smoke? Where's the mirrors? Where, where's the photoshopping? And, and 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 it just drives you nuts i mean come on, uh, we've all have to be honest about about what it is we're actually doing and what it is we'd still like to do and what it is that we can't do and let's let's bring some let's bring some real honesty to this stuff because because you know i I don't think the investors are are buying that stuff anymore, although i'm um, you know we'll, we'll wait and see but um uh,
2: Well, I think that has changed within the last couple of years. The investors were buying it until uh, a couple of years ago. And I think now they've started to recognize this is a lot of steps on a very long path. And they're going to have to have a lot of patience. They're not going to see a return on investment in the next couple of years. So it's only investors with a lot of patience who are um, going into it at this stage.
1: Yeah, the, the way I am still personally, I still think that there's enormous uh, fun, fundamental opportunities here. But, but you've got to be able to do it and do it every day or maybe 350 out of the 365. The hell with the other 15. You know? as, I, as I told my students, I mean, if you do so well, 350 days a year, you deserve two weeks vacation. OK, Take, you know, when when the damn Ida or whatever hits Jersey, of course, cool, stay home. OK, you know, you don't have to go out and the yeah. take me. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah th- there's a big
2: opportunity out there, just as there is with, uh, say, uh, thermonuclear fusion for uh, power <laughs> generation. But um, but it's a long road to get there.
1: Yeah. Talk about the thermo guys. I mean, they've been saying, oh, man. We're trying to just be able to contain this plasma so that we generate as much energy as we put into it. What they fail to tell you is that's the energy directly into the plasma and the energy directly out. It doesn't talk about how you took the electricity and converted it to that energy or how you took this energy out and converted it to a usable electricity because holy hell, you need a 10 to one ratio before you're you're out ahead of that curve. Never, yeah. <laughs> uh sorry yes I'm learning something new every day
0: <laughs> one more story that i wanted to throw in alan because i knew yep. how uh how you'd react to this uh, oh, audi what? audi has introduced a, a grand sphere concept electric sedan that in gadget says uses level four full self-driving to help you avoid driving whenever possible calling it a luxurious living room that just happens to let you take a wheel
1: um Well, if it uh, just—I don't know—calling it—I hate the levels anyway. Calling it level four is come on. I mean, level four at least, as as I always understood, it took you from A to B, whatever the A and B was, and and did that safely without you intervening. Okay. Now, I guess you could take it—you know—middle of the milepost twenty-eight on the New Jersey Turnpike to the middle of milepost thirty-two on the New Jersey Turnpike, but. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, this sounds
2: like a concept car rather than something real. Right, it is, real. yes,
0: yes, exactly. Yeah, I think okay, they but, unveiled this at, at the IFA conference in Europe. <laughs> oh,
2: okay, well, but uh, GM had concept cars back in the 1950s that were going <laughs> to do all of this too. So, yeah, uh, yeah we've seen cars- those
1: videos right <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, but a, a lot of these. I, I'm thinking what was it? The Faraday Future at CES about five years ago it was yeah. basically a plastic sculpture. Um,
0: well, Stephen, uh, we want to thank you for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate yeah. it. Great, great insight. Yeah.
2: Okay.
1: All right. And, and, uh, thanks for inviting
2: me. And, uh, it
1: was uh, a fun discussion. And thank you for coming on, Steve. Really, hey, this is. I think there is still value in the concept, but it is still a heck of a lot of work and it needs a lot of innovation, needs, needs a lot of good people, and needs a lot of honesty in it too. Yeah.
0: Thank you as well to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO. You can get more information at MOTOETF.com. You can find us once again at SmartDrivingCar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, wherever you turn to for podcasts. You can get your smart speaker to play us, too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching. Have a great Labor Day weekend, and please stay safe.
1: And thank you, Steve, again. Wonderful having okay. you. Thanks a lot. Okay. Th- thanks. Thanks.